Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Jean-Marc Bougie. Jean-Marc has had a remarkable career in the capital markets. He invested the first 15 years of his career in investment banking with RBC Capital Markets. There, he was responsible for raising billions of dollars for his clients. The first part of our conversation is a deep dive into how investment banking works and how CEOs and management teams can make the best of those banking relationships. Jean-Marc then went on to lead a private equity firm as their CEO. Over the next decade, he was able to build assets from around $200 million to well north of $4 billion. I was keen to hear about what he learned from this experience. And it took us into a discussion of what good board composition is and the role of the chairman and what it's meant to be. For both management teams and bankers, I think this episode is a must listen. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Jean-Marc, welcome to the show. Corey, thank you for having me. Yes. The power of LinkedIn brought us together. And we had a bit of a pre-call to get acquainted, and I am really looking forward to our conversation. So I think the best way we need to start is with an introduction and a bit of background on yourself. So I'll pass it over to you and let us know where you came from and what you did. Sure. Well, my background is pretty straightforward. I spent the first part of my career with the Investment Bank of the Royal Bank of Canada, RBC Capital Markets. Spent 15 years with them, and four of them actually was when they had a private equity group. And that gave me the itch to be more of a principal and ultimately be more on the PE side of things. So 10 years ago, I jumped ship and moved to a client of mine. I was essentially a family office and became CEO of the Hillcourt Group, which is a private investment group and only manages the partner's capital, not third parties, and grew that business to where it is today. So um, it's been a great ride. I bet. And I have to say, 15 years in investment banking, is uh, that is a lot of time in a really high-stress profession. Look, it is. But uh, like all things, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. Every time when we go out and uh, recruit uh, new potential analysts and bankers, and questions would be asked. It says, oh, the investment banking field is very glamorous. It's exciting. I want to get into it. And I always ask them, why is it that you want to do it? You have to do it for the right reasons. And money is not the right reason. Because especially as you're starting off, if you look at what your hourly wage truly is, 
at times for me, it was below minimum wage, but it was definitely worth it in terms of the education, the experience, the exposure, and I do it all over again. That's the key. If you're passionate about what you're doing, time will fly by. I'm really interested to discuss more about it because I think there's so much in and around the world of investment banking that companies and CEOs need to understand and perhaps they don't. And so why don't we focus on investment banking and your experience there and how it relates to issuers and public companies or private companies as well. And then also after that, talk about your role in like CEO experience and now a lot of chairman roles. But if we're going to go back to investment banking, what would you say that CEOs and management teams need to know about investment bankers that perhaps they don't or they don't fully value or capitalize on? It's a great question. And there isn't a straight answer to it. And the one thing I'd say is that not all investment bankers are created equal. Some of them would be the stereotype that you would possibly hear or see elsewhere where they're sharks. They're just there to get a fee to execute on a transaction that the client wants, don't really care too much about it, and move on to the next deal just to make the most money. Others are going to be a lot more relationship-driven, and uh, they're there to provide the best advice to the client, and it's longer-term relationship that they're building. I, myself, was more the, the second one than the former. To me, and candidly, I had that liberty in the platform that I was working on. With RBC, you're there to build long-term relationships. And that makes it, candidly, a lot more rewarding. But what is the key to understand is how best to work with your investment banker, not necessarily view him as a commodity, and what can you get out of him from a strategic long-term relationship. The investment banker has a lot of knowledge in terms of the markets, investors, how best to position the company in a given environment through the cycles, looking at the capital structure, looking at strategic alternatives for the business in terms of acquisitions, in terms of growth. It's only if you build a true long-term relationship that you'll get that strong partnership that you're really going to get value out of. Otherwise, you're just hiring someone to execute on a transaction and move on to the next thing. You're missing out so much. In your roles as chairman advisor to companies now, how do you advise them to choose the investment bankers and to separate the sharks from those who are really looking to build relationships? You know, there's only 24 hours in a day and we shouldn't be working all of them. So how can you separate the wheat from the chaff to find a good banking relationship? Well, the key is to find the right, first off, investment banker that has domain expertise in your given field. And secondly, after that, making sure that there's strong support for that domain expertise within the firm, and they've got access to the markets that you're looking to tap into. That's really key. And different companies will have different needs. Some of them, it's local needs. Some of them, it's more institutional access that they're looking for. Others want retail distribution. Others are looking at global investor base or potential acquisition targets or to be sold to a strategic or a financial player. Different needs will potentially guide you towards the right bank and the right banker to service you. Yeah, I got you there. I'm curious, with the experience in, in banking that you had, RBC is you know, an amazing, uh, you know, one of the, it's top tier in Canada and certainly recognized globally. What was your most enjoyable deal to be a part of? What was most memorable from that experience there? It's hard to pick one. Worked on so many transactions. I had so many great clients. 
But the most rewarding clients are the ones who truly trust you. And that's what as we're alluding to earlier. And that for me, the key was building relationships. As an example, I had a client who became a very good client who was looking to do a spinoff of one of their uh, companies and take it public. They approached the street, asked for a beauty pageant to decide who would lead the IPO of the business. Ultimately, I came in to pitch and I gave them advice, which nobody else did, which is don't go public. Here it's too early. Good man. Uh, you'll become an orphan in the marketplace. It's the wrong thing to do. If I were you, I'd continue to grow the business privately. And when you're ready, then we'll take you public. Now, the client was very surprised, essentially stating, well, look, all your competitors are clamoring, sort of knocking on the door and really are telling me that I'm ready. I said, great, go right ahead. But I believe that you've got a lot more to gain by staying private and getting ready to go through the front door and to get the impact that you truly want. Fortunately for me, I guess it resonated with them uh, and their board, and they elected to remain private. And the clients uh, kept on touching base with me and saying, am I ready now? Am I ready now? Made an acquisition. Are we good to go? And I eventually took them public. That trust relationship is what allowed me to lead every single follow-on offering after and also to be their trusted M&A advisor. When they were looking at doing acquisitions uh, internationally, they'd give me a call and say, Jean-Marc, we're at a stalemate here. We need for you to help us out. So I come in and unblock the logjam and, and get the deal done. That's what I did. Transactions in Europe and Germany, transaction in the US. And it was just so enjoyable to have a client that understood this. Other example, taking Aeroplan public, which was the frequent flyer sort of program from Air Canada. There, the complexity was the accounting issues. How do you account for all those points? Uh, creating new accounting standards. To me, it was a challenge. It was fun. And when we then had the opportunity to, again, advise them on acquisitions in the UK, in the US, and in, in Mexico. So... For me, that's where the fun comes from, is building strong relationships, following through with clients, and delivering results for them time and time again. It's really neat because for our listeners, I'm seeing you smile. I'm seeing you light up. You took a lot of pride and passion in what you did is what I can see from you, from your body language. So that's really cool. 100%. Yeah. Now, let's talk about Aeroplan. That's an interesting deal. You know, That's not something that is just... Uh, Hey, fits in a portfolio easy. There's a lot of communication there. There would be an education component to, to having your buyers, your investors understand what that deal is and, and the potential in the future for it. So what was that? Yeah. Tell us more about that and how you're able to, to educate your investors on that. The key to any successful capital raise is distilling the message down into its simplest form as much as you possibly can. As I indicated there, Accounting issues made it extremely difficult for people to understand the cash flow sort of component of the business. Here you have a company which effectively receives revenue upfront by selling the miles that it will be issuing. And there its partner was essentially Air Canada. So Air Canada was paying them, accumulating cash on its balance sheet, 
only to be using that cash down the line through redemptions. So therefore, it's no clear-cut EBITDA here in the business. So we had to create sort of an adjusted EBITDA, which is a good proxy for the true profitability of the organization. Once you're able to do that, then you're able to communicate clearly to the investment community just how profitable the business is and why it's such a great and powerful business model. And that's the key. It's distilling those key aspects into a simple form that the investor will understand it clearly and say, great, that's for me. I want to be a shareholder there because I see the potential. Yeah. You know, the simplicity is, is huge there. And there's, there's so many things that come to mind for that. One is that a confused mind always says no. So if you're given a pitch and it's just, you know, an ounce of doubt, it's no, we don't have time for this right now. And, and you're going to fail to get that next meeting. Another thing that I hear there, and then I'm curious about it, it kind of sounds like an insurance model where you're bringing in your premiums and waiting for a payout for the future. Is that, am I on base there from? Uh, 100%. Oh yeah. <laughs> there we go. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I find too, is when, you know, pitching deals is finding those analogies people can just bite into and really grab onto. And I can see that. Now, I want to hear more about you know, the buy side and building those relationships. So you'd be on the sell side there. You'd be t- going out offering that deal. And I want to hear more about that. So when you have institutions and investors and, and those who are looking to allocate capital and you as an investment banker are going to those relationships and presenting these deals, how are those relationships built and how are you communicating with those relationships on behalf of your clients? And what does that look like in more nuance? Well, the reality is, is the investment banker uh, seldomly is the one that has the relationship with the investors. The investment banker is the one that has the relationship with the client, the issuer. He's the one who'll package things up. And that's where you need to have a team, which is your investment bank, which has different functions. And your sales and trading team are the ones who will have those relationships with the investors. And it's critical for them at the same time to truly understand what product you're bringing to the market, to understand because they're the ones who will be your interface in terms of pitching the story to those investors. And it's their job to actually nurture those long-term relationships with their clients by bringing them the right products and giving them the right advice. Just as pointing out earlier, you can have an investment banker who will try to sell anything just to make a buck or build a long-term relationship. You can have a sales guy who will try to sell anything just to make a commission or one which is there to build a long-term relationship. Obviously, you're running a boiler room, then it's the former. If you're there for the long-term and you've got an established client base, it's the latter. And the latter is where you understand what your client needs are. You understand what interests them. You understand what type of investments they're more comfortable with. It's also the institutional salesman and the retail sort of uh, broker as well to be able to gauge what the market dynamics are, what the industry trends are. So he can educate the client and tell them, look, now's the right time to get into such and such industry. 
And by the way, here are a few ideas for you. That's how you build ultimately alpha, but clearly long-term relationships. Hey, you know what? In my question, I didn't account for the sales and trading relationships that are the ones who have those relationships out to, to those investors. Meaning you as the investment banker have to internally build those relationships and, and find the ones who are out there on the sales desk who align with your interests, if I'm not mistaken. That is 100% correct. And that's critical. If you do not have a good sales team, you can be the best investment banker, but you're one, two, three people. You need the team. That's what it's all about. Like in any business, you need the right team. It's really quite fascinating. I mean, success in investment banking, and I know we're going real long in the tooth here, long in the discussion about banking, but for an investment banker as an individual, their success, and especially those who are absolutely outstanding, it's there's a lot of things out of their control. So it's really interesting to think about their ability to succeed and the relationships they will have to manage uh, in order to, to build that success, one of them being the sales and trading desk. I agree 100%. Uh, that being said, the successful uh, firms are the ones who understand how every function works together and is able to bring them together for that collective success. If you're a banker and you're covering a given field, if you don't have your research properly, which will be used by your sales force to educate the clients, and if it's not a field that is really up the alley of the firm, you're not going to have any success. Because there, maybe you'll get an M&A mandate here and there where you're doing most of the legwork, but fundamentally, as soon as you get into the capital markets where you're looking at raising debt or equity or any type of uh, financial instrument you're trying to sell, you need the complement. And that's where ultimately the successful investment banks understand this and they'll create silos to some extent where everything, every piece builds upon each other and ensures that you've got the right coverage and the right sales team and research to be successful. We go through 15 years of banking and then you move on to become a CEO. How did that experience in banking influence your move into to the leadership role as a principal and as a leader of a company? Well, as I shared with you earlier, I'd sort of tasted the joys and tribulations of private equity earlier in my career when the bank had a private equity group. The bank was late into the game and realized ultimately that it was creating more conflicts of interest and took that capital. We had half a billion dollars of capital to invest. We had invested 315 million, but they realized it was creating more conflicts of interest and probably better to leverage that capital by investing in other PE shops, including KKR, Payne Capital, and other Canadian sort of PE groups to get access to the deal flow in terms of IPO, M&A, financing, in terms of leverage finance, and so on. So there, it was the right strategy for the bank. It made perfect sense. And that's when I went back to banking. I always had in the back of my mind that desire to go back to the buy side, on the principal side. For me, I was very comfortable providing advice. And it's easy to give the advice. The client makes the decision in the end, and they live up to it. As a, the advisor... You're just providing advice. But for me, I've always been very comfortable taking my own advice and being accountable for the advice. On the buy side, accountability becomes yours 
because you're calling the shots in the end and calling the shots in terms of what you'll do, but the results of your investments and your decisions. So for me, I was ready for that. I was ready to take that leap and roll up my sleeves and build something and took some time to find uh, the right platform. But there's a client of mine that uh, had been after me for some time, an entrepreneur who uh, built a successful practice and was looking at building up uh, sort of the principal side of things and wanted to uh, go out and buy some businesses. And that's when I joined him and spent 10 years with him building the group. And we had our ups and downs. That's normal, but I had a blast doing it. That's awesome. I got a lot of questions to come from there. One is, I'm very interested in origin stories and, and thinking about when you sat down to actually have the discussion of you taking that role as CEO and how you approached that. So can you share what you remember of that? Was it, hey, I think I should be CEO of this? Was it him approaching you? What were the negotiations like? How did you yeah, set the terms for you leaving one profession to step into another? Ultimately... I wasn't hired as CEO. I was hired as sort of, I guess, the, if I recall, my original title was managing director and chief investment officer. My original mandate was solely focused on the private equity side of the business and to go out and make some acquisitions. So my mandate was very clear, very straightforward, and had to go out there and then find the right targets and execute. That being said, the business that I joined didn't have any limited partners. It was really just my partner's capital. He was running another business that was generating cash flow that he would reinvest into the acquisitions. It was organic growth. And what happened is that for me, that other business needed to generate cash flow in order for me to have capital to invest. Coming into the group, I quickly realized that things weren't necessarily as I thought they were. And I sort of found a few issues. And consequently, the first 100 days on the job is scoping things out and saying, well, hold on. If we're going to have success on the principal side and truly grow there, we've got a rocky foundation on the core business. For me, like building a house, you're not going to build a house on rocky foundations. If you do, recipe for disaster. Anything you do, strong foundations. So I spent more time up front understanding the dynamics of that business and coming up with ways to strengthen it and to tweak it to be more successful and to essentially fix the foundation. So I was sitting down with my partner and saying, okay, so you should be doing this. You should be communicating that. You should be doing this. And every time he was extremely supportive, great partner to have and says, great, go on, do it, do it, do it. And at one point I said, hold on, there's just so much that I can do as managing director and chief investment officer. This has got to come from the CEO. It's leadership. You have to drive a strategy and you got to get the whole organization on board and yeah, I remember vividly as if it was yesterday, he looked at me straight in the eyes and said, Jean-Marc, congratulations. Here are the keys. You have now been appointed CEO. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
It sounds like the kind of entrepreneur who very much is just the kind of person who gets out of the way of, of intelligent people and says, go, you lead and on your way. 100%. He was a great partner and was 100% supportive, which was great to have. And that's how we were able to uh, successfully grow the business. That was key to the partnership there. Any metrics there that we could size the business up that you'd like to share or that you can share? What do you mean in terms of metrics? Uh, like financial metrics or assets under management, deals that you'd be going after, things like that. A few metrics that I can share because it's a private organization, but what is in the public domain? When I joined, sort of value of the assets, probably a few hundred million dollars and grew it to north of four and a half billion dollars. Wow. Uh, so we had good growth, good business, ups and downs. We were invested in uh, various sectors including long-term care, one of our largest private operators out east, to a bunch of industrial businesses in Alberta. Some of them bought at the time that the market was collapsing, but uh, continued to do well and uh, grow those businesses to real estate. You name it, we're probably in it. And uh, so it was a diversified group. As I said, ups and downs, COVID uh, sort of pandemic did take its toll on the organization, both financially uh, in terms of cash-wise and in terms of operations. But it's a question of rolling up your sleeves and figuring things out and moving it forward. It's not easy, but uh, it was a heck of a ride. Yeah, no kidding. That's remarkable growth. I want you to take us back to those first 100 days. You come into the organization, you realize like, oh, wait, this isn't quite as what I was thinking. There's a rocky foundation that needs to be fixed here. What were some of those items that you found and that you said these need to be fixed? And I mean, hey, if you want to get into the details of what it is specifically around private equity and the organizational setup or whatever it may be, I'm curious about what that was. And then the time frame in which you looked to fix them and the time frame in which you kept in mind to see the results from those changes. Can you get us into your mindset? from back then and because we now know the result. I can get into, I won't be able to get into details just because it is a private company and had very specific issues that needed to be dealt with. Some of them were on the HR side, which we had to address. Others uh, were simply on the product, how things were being packaged and pitched. And some of them uh, were on the back end in terms of how things were being managed. But the key is to really do a deep dive of the organization, understand what makes it successful, understand how every step works and distill it down to its simplest form by candidly asking a gazillion questions. People that know me are, are accustomed to uh, being bombarded by a ton of questions. And I keep on telling them, yeah, you'll get stupid questions from me. And that's just normal. Um, yeah. I'm not afraid to, to say, I don't know. And to say, explain it to me. And even if you explain it, I don't understand it. I'll say, dumb it down because yeah, I'm dumb. That's the reality is you need to take stock of exactly how things are being done and who are the players, who's the team around it. Are they going to be a positive or a negative influence to those processes and to the organization and to adapt accordingly? Otherwise, you won't be able to move forward. I've asked this to a number of our guests. What would you say the most influential mistake you made in your career was? Oof. I know I just took that one out of left field for you. I wasn't in the, the list there. <laughs> the biggest mistake that I've ever made? 
First of all, is not take action as quick as I should. Okay. And second one, not listen to my gut enough. Deep down, you know what needs to get done. Your gut is 99% right all the time. Consequently, especially in a leadership position, you've got to make tough calls and you got to take action. And at times, it's not pleasant. But the sooner you rip off that Band-Aid, the quicker you'll heal. And so to me, that's the biggest learning. I appreciate that. I seem to recall there's even been some science around gut feel. It triggers a thought to go look that up because, you know, people say, oh, you just follow your gut. But there's something there, either the subconscious, which has a sympathetic, that's the right word, you know, trigger a reaction for, for people. So I appreciate that. Now, from all this experience, you've now do a lot of advisory work and you sit as chairman on a number of companies. Let's talk about the chairman role. What's your role there? What makes a good chairman for a company? Well, let's take a step back. What's the role of the board? And understanding that it has a vital uh, role to play. And candidly, it's different in a private company as it is in a public company. And that uh, private company, it's going to be a lot more focused on the operations. Won't necessarily be as formal, whereas in a public setting, you got more regulations to follow and uh, red tape to get through and resolutions to to approve. Whereas the private one, you're truly getting, trying to get as much value as you want. So the role of directors, I guess, fivefold, the way I've always seen it is you got to look at the strategic direction of the company. Is it uh, going in the right place? Is it understanding its environment? And is the plan clear? The second point is, do you have the right leadership? That's a hard one to answer at times in that you don't interact with the whole team, but that top leadership is is what gives the organization the, well, it's called leadership. They lead. Therefore, people will take direction from them and making sure that it's clear, that they know exactly how to empower their teams, that they communicate clearly so that that strategy that everyone signed off on is clear with everyone and that there's the right team behind them because it's never a one-person job and a one-person team that you've got the right complement at different levels to do that. Ultimately, the CEO's job is clearly that direction and that leadership in terms of making sure that you're able to execute on that plan. Then you're going to make sure that you've got sound financial footing. That's not just looking at the financial statements. But it's understanding those financial statements in terms of how does that relate to the growth objectives of the business in terms of additional capital requirements, looking at your working capital, is it getting out of whack uh, in terms of what is the capital structure? If you're hit with a pandemic, can you survive? How will you deal with it? What are your contingency plans? That's what the board needs to look at. It's risk management from that perspective. Obviously, you got the legal and regulatory, making sure that's that's done properly. And as a board member, you're representing shareholders and other stakeholders. So therefore, you've got to put that hat of I'm representing others. I'm sort of making sure that their voice is heard and that it's not just the CEO who does whatever he wants, 
but rather that you're looking, taking back and taking stock of, are we doing the right things for shareholders, employees, and other stakeholders so that it's the right strategy? And if you review all those five, you're probably doing a pretty good job. I feel like a lot of companies don't put enough enough thought into their board composition and to pulling together a really competent board because there's also a degree of relationships and advice that can come from a board. But a conversation with a gentleman named Rick Rule comes to mind. He's a you know legendary mining speculator. And when he was on the podcast, he would talk about how he will look at the board boards of potential investments. And he's like, well, what is this guy here for? He has no idea. He's a geologist, but he has no idea about this deposit or the, the formation of this deposit. So he's useless. Why is he there? And I mean, it was that degree of focus on on looking at are the right people in the right seats, even at the board level, that I thought was very interesting. Oh, no, 100%. I'm not sure what the example there of the geologist was. But ultimately, the key question to ask is, indeed, what does each board member bring to the table? And it's a question of what is their experience? What is their domain expertise? And ultimately is what intelligent questions can they ask? Because that's what a board member does. Ask questions. They're not there to run the business. That's what management does. Therefore, they're there to challenge. They're there to bring a different perspective to make sure that what's being represented to the board and other stakeholders, shareholders through communication is validated. It's not BS. And it's the first sort of function there. And and that composition is key. So I agree 100% with Rick in that you need to make sure that everyone contributes positively in that relationship. And there's so many boards out there that, fortunately, I say that you've got a bunch of cronies, people that are just there to cast your check, and that's it. And will they challenge? At times, unfortunately, some people, they don't want to challenge too much because they like the paycheck. And that's sad. And I'm not saying that's the norm. Far from it. Uh, you've got some great people out there that understand their role, that they take it seriously, and will be very active. Now in this day and age uh, where you've got a lot which is being placed on uh, board members, where the volume of information that needs to be reviewed prior to board meetings is getting bigger and bigger because of regulations with rules and so on, they need to have the time and to be able to do it properly to truly add that value. You're asking the question earlier, so what's the role of the chairman? Well, the role of the chairman is to keep order within this group of board members, making sure indeed that there is the right complement of people around the table. Sure, depending on the size of the board, there will be a governance committee, and that committee's role is to look at who are the different board members, what domain expertise would be great to have, what different voice should we have at the table from a different geography, from an ethnic group, whatever it may be. You're looking for not just one view of the world, but as broad of a view so that when issues are discussed at the board meeting, it's not everybody agrees, but rather people bring different perspective. Because it's only by getting those different perspectives 
that you can truly get to a better understanding of the issue and the risks and potentially the opportunities. I appreciate you brought it back to the chairman role there from my original question and pointing out that what I'm hearing is first is you know to keep order and to basically help pull together the right people for that board. Your job is to to manage the board in a sense and make sure that it's working in the best interest of the organization. It isn't just a bunch of cronies sitting around grabbing a check. That is the sign of a good chairman versus somebody else who's just taking the title. Oh, 100%. Then the chairman as well is going to spend more time with the CEO normally. And then there's the distinction between a non-executive and maybe an executive chairman. The executive chairman then can be a lot more involved in the business. There is probably a distinction between, I would say, a public company and a private company and a PE-owned company. In my case, these were businesses that we owned outright. I would call myself more of an executive chairman in that I would work very closely with management teams and would challenge them and ultimately became their confident in terms of understanding what their issues are. Ultimately, it's lonely in the top when you're a CEO. You need someone to bounce things off in confidence and talk through issues. That's a lot of of what you do, at least I did, as chairman of those companies, in terms of helping them navigate through that. And that's a rewarding thing to see those changes come about thereafter. But it all depends on how much time you've got, how much you want to get involved in the business, how much depth you have in your management team. Obviously, smaller business, less depth. Therefore, maybe being more hands-on is is required. Multi-billion dollar business. Depth is there. Uh, You've got a strong team. Therefore, your role is different. So it's a question of adapting to the environment, to the realities that are there, and just doing what's right for the business. This conversation about boards and their role within the organization, it brings me back to when I first entered the business world and I was doing mergers and acquisitions internally for a company called Agrium, which was is now Nutrien. At the time, it was a $10 billion company and about 10,000 employees. And in our small group, I remember just the hours and hours that would go into developing these board packs that would go off to that board of directors. And one, I questioned if they ever read them. And now I question really, you know, how engaged was that board? Because I, I remember exactly what it looked like. Let's just put it there. <laughs> and that's no slight against them, but it's just a reflection on our conversation here. So I appreciate your insights there. Now, I'm curious with your experience and, and certainly chairman roles now, perhaps you, you don't need to use names, but which CEO would stand out to you as being somebody who's been the most compelling and in how they've run their business, how they've been able to tackle challenges, you know, something that really stood out to you that perhaps could be heard in a, in a form of advice for our listeners. Again, it's hard to pinpoint anyone or any given company. And I've had the pleasure of working with so many great sort of CEOs and entrepreneurs, both as an investment banker and as a private equity guy. Ultimately, what you're looking for is someone who truly understands what true leadership is and strategic vision to grow their business. And you can be in any business. You can set yourself your own sort of class. I'll take an example here in Quebec, where I'm based in Montreal, and we have an entrepreneur called Alain Bouchard, who bought 
a convenience store. Small convenience store. How boring can that be? A convenience store. Lo and behold, he's the biggest convenience store operator in the world today. That's Alimentation Couchetard. So he focused on being the best convenience store out there, giving the consumer the best experience they could ask for out of a convenience store. It's so basic, yet he developed a formula to be able to do it better, more efficiently, and to increase margins to be able to grow the business. He went out and with his team, built out Alimentation Couchetard. It's incredible to see that success story in such a short period of time, how they built such a formidable sort of empire. In Quebec, we've got quite a number of great entrepreneurs who've built phenomenal businesses. You got the Desmarais family in the financial services side of things. Uh, you've got Jean Coutu that built a drugstore chain that was sold to Metro. You've got the Saputo family. It's G's. It's unbelievable to see those guys where they focused on a niche and built world-class businesses. And then in Vancouver, a guy like Jimmy Patterson, who used car salesman, built a formidable empire, private business. In any sector, you can find someone that is just in a class of their own. What they understand is market trends and most importantly, how to service that customer better than anybody else. Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Will the customer buy your product? Yes or no. Will they want your service? Will they walk into your store? Will they spend their hard-earned money with you? Yes or no. So all the right CEOs understand this. And it doesn't matter what business you're in. Same thing. If you're looking at, talk about Rick Rule, if you're looking at commodities business, understanding the business cycles, understanding sort of how do you finance yourself, streaming deals. You know, there's so many examples, but it's always the people that go over and beyond and deliver that great experience, that great product that can innovate and can adapt to change that will succeed. To me, it's this relentless focus on, yeah, on value delivery and however that may be. And in fact, I, I'm glad you brought up Kushtard. Pardon my lack of pronunciation there. That's a fascinating story about a relatively just unremarkable business. So can you just build on that? You said in a relatively short amount of time, it's grown into a world leader. So you really lit up there. What do you know about that business? What I know is what anybody can research and go through it. And I've followed the team's achievement from their infancy and through the acquisitions that they did. But starting off from a single store acquisition to buying up multinationals. When was that? Well, let me put it this way. The core team, I believe they're in their 70s and in their lifetime that they built the business. Top of my head, I wouldn't be able to tell you in exactly which year they built it, 
but it's less than half a century. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Still, I really do enjoy that kind of success story. And I, and I like the, that relentless focus on something that is so, you just, you, you don't even think about it. So interesting. I'm curious about your thoughts on public company investor relations and the role and if it's increasing in importance and how you see good investor relations done. The role of investor relations is critical. The one thing I always told clients is that it's one thing to go public, being public, if you do not continue to communicate properly with the investment community, you run the risk of becoming an orphan very quickly because people just won't know what you're up to and clearly won't care. Just as I said previously, leadership in an organization is key. One of the key aspects of leadership is communication. Communication with your employees, making sure that they understand what that vision is, what's expected of them, what they should be focused on, and how the business is going. And it's a question of being transparent with the good, the bad, and the ugly, and celebrating your wins and not sort of shoveling your hardship under the rug and not talking about it, but owning up to it and sort of learning from them. Same thing with your customers, making sure you communicate properly in order to build that long-term relationship. Those that are successful develop relationships with their clients. They want repeat business as much as they possibly can. It's always cheaper to sell to an existing client than to try to find a new one. Consequently, if you're able to increase the amount of product you sell to a given client or to sell more, your business is going to grow. You need to show what that value proposition is uh, so that you retain that client. Same thing is with your investor base. Your investor, is it a client? Is it a partner? It's all the same. Client is your partner. Your employee is your partner. Your shareholder is your partner. So you're going to treat your partner as best you possibly can by demonstrating that he's put his hard-earned cash in the right place. He's backing the right team at the right time, and he shouldn't be selling and pulling out and investing with somebody else. And that's where communication is key. So your investor relations is not about managing a pump and dump. It's about communicating properly with your stakeholders so that they have a clear, clear, clear picture of what's going on with the business and communicating to them, not just in a dry fashion what the financial results are and that's it. And then you move on and let us do our job, but rather you communicate your successes. And if you've got issues, how you're approaching that and how you're going to resolve it. So the more dialogue you've got with them, the more comfortable they'll be understanding that they've got things in hand. If you don't communicate with them, they won't have a clue. And you'll say, hmm, I'm not comfortable. What does that mean? Sell. I'm just going to churn you. I'm just going to churn you. And so as you build that relationship, you use that investor relations in order to broaden the pool of investors, of people that have an interest. And it's critical to have a good balance of 
retail and institutional investors in order to have the proper liquidity at the same time in the stock. People will not stick with you all their lives necessarily. For whatever reason, they may have a life event or they may just not like you anymore or may feel that you're a cyclical stock and they should be pulling out. But ultimately, at some point, that has to be recycled into the hands of somebody else. And that somebody else, if you've been clear in your messaging and how are you going to be dealing with that cycle downturn and why they should still be an investor and still buy in from the guy who wants to bail, well, that's key in ensuring that your stock doesn't crash. I'm a huge, huge proponent of having a very active, very transparent investor relations program. And in this day and age, it's easier than ever to do. Before, most of the times, you couldn't communicate as openly and easily. So you had sort of these lunch and learns that you'd show up in a given city and you'd sort of invite a bunch of brokers and sort of buy-side analysts and uh, institutions into a room and you'd pitch them over lunch and you'd hope that they got the story and were actually interested in it. Nowadays, that's no longer required. Uh, you can do that all through sort of uh, digital process uh, with webinars digitally. It's phenomenal how this has evolved. So much more efficient, which means that it's to reach the same audience, the cost has gone down tremendously. And your reach is not just local, it's global in a very simple fashion. So the right team that's got the right sort of infrastructure to get to that audience is invaluable. Man, that was a very full answer on investor relations. So I appreciate that. And I absolutely, you know, I really appreciate that you touched on retail, you touched on the institutions, you touched on the vulnerability of coming through and saying, hey, this is where we're at and this is how we're handling it. And then what that does is it starts to build trust. And, you know, the cost of acquiring a new customer is the same thing. You know, cost of acquiring a new investor is probably a lot higher. But could you not, through good communication, turn a downturn into a buying opportunity for your existing investors kind of thing versus just trying to shy away and ignore having a, a hard conversation? So I, I appreciate your insights on that. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're hitting an hour already. And so, oh my goodness. yeah, it's been a really good conversation. I want to end with one or two final questions. And I think a final question here would be, what are you focused on now? And yeah, what are some of your future interests? And you know, perhaps you could even conclude with a bit of a view on where we're at from an economic standpoint and how that's influencing what you're doing with the rest of your career. Sure. So I've, I've been extremely fortunate in that I consider that I've had a great career. I've worked with great organizations, uh, great people, great teams, and great clients and great businesses. But for me, it's been an absolute pleasure. I have been fortunate to be able to step back a year ago from the organization I was leading to take stock of where things were at for me and sort of recharge my batteries and clear my head. The pandemic had uh, been extremely sort of stressful and uh, challenging. And ultimately, I'm the type of a guy who is 110% in. I consequently uh, rolled up our sleeves and uh, tackled the issues and did whatever we had to do to ensure our businesses were going to get through it and would thrive coming out of, of things, uh, which is the case. So for me, 
at this point in time, I've ultimately taken a step back. I have cleared my head and been able to, to see where is it that I've had the most fun in my career. And uh, clearly, it's, it's on the private equity side. It's working with management teams. It's building businesses. It's seeing the challenge there. That I can help on, on the board side of things. But at the same time, I sort of realize that I'm ready to roll up the slates even further and probably looking at opportunities of either buying a business or ultimately joining a private equity group, continue doing what I love so much. At the same time, I do have, call it a, a passion project uh, that I'm working on, which uh, is a cardiovascular drug company, uh, which I've been involved in for, for 11 years. It's a phenomenal opportunity in terms of reducing uh, materially the risk of cardiovascular issues. I'm all in there in terms of helping that team, ensuring that they take their product to market. So that's taking a fair amount of my time, but I'm, I'm a true believer uh, of that. And I'm there to, to, uh, to see it through. Awesome. Well, Jean-Marc, I'm really happy that we connected. It's been great to hear your experience. So thank you for sharing it with us. And uh, yeah, best of luck with uh, either new private equity venture or with the cardiovascular deal. So thank you very much for your time. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Corey. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.